Revelation chapter 1. We'll finish up chapter 1 and we'll dip our toe in chapter 2. Kind of a little overview. But we're going to end chapter 1 here with a very vital verse. And I was really kind of not sure how much to put when and where. And um, this needs to be covered because there's a lot of confusion about the book of Revelation. That was one of the things I heard Friday night. It was kind of like, wow, I've never heard much spoken about the book of Revelation, and you guys did a little podcast on it. You know, I hadn't, we didn't really talk about this, or we don't bring it up too much, or it seems like it's divisive in this way. Maybe it is. I think it unites. I've always found it kind of uniting. People get excited about what's going to happen, knowing the future. I like to know the future, and I think it's here for us. And so uh, we have a verse here that we take the time, and I think a lot of times, I don't want to jump to the chase. You know, that, that's a saying in America. You know, jump to the chase. You know, that's kind of like get to the car scene. Like used to in the 70s, every movie had a car chase. You know, you jump to that. Get to the exciting part. And we kind of blow past the front half of the book of Revelation. Let's get to fire and brimstone and earthquakes and, you know, hailstones and whatever else is going on. And we overlook some of the vital things at the beginning that help us then interpret those things that are coming ahead. And so, so we've taken the time to go through chapter 1 because it's vital. And it boils down to this verse that we're going to have this morning. It's vital for understanding the book of Revelation. Uh, last week we um, looked at the description of Jesus Christ, his power and his authority as it's described visually as John begins to describe him. And you have to think about, John knew Jesus physically. You know, he knew him. He'd spent time with him. He'd walked with him. He ate with him. You know, he had supper. He considered himself a close friend and was humbled by that, that Jesus Christ would have him in his inner circle, that he would have him, you know, to, to talk to and, and, and to, to listen to and be his disciple and be his apostle that he leads to the church. Uh, John was kind of floored by that. You know, we talked about him taking care of Jesus's mother, you know, that he took care of Mary and other things. And so he's, he knows him. But when he sees his power and his authority revealed, when it's not veiled in the flesh, when it's, when it's unhindered, he falls down like a dead man. That's verse 17. He says, And I saw him, I felt his feet as dead. Kills him. He sees him and he sees him and he strengthens his glory. And Jesus does what we expect Jesus to do for those he loves, right? He lays his hand on him and comforts him. He says, And I felt his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand on me, and saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Lays his hand on him, comforts him with his touch. Tells him to fear not. That's an often spoken refrain of his to us. It shows how fearful we are. (laughs) That he's having to address us often with fear not or do not be afraid. I think it comes down to a matter of trust, right? Trust me, is what he's saying. Trust me. And and that's his answer here. He's like, yes, you've seen my power on display. And and that, that kind of tells us the horrible sight that he's seen Jesus with his power and authority that is there. That kind of fear. Think of an authority figure. Think of some kind of powerful person and you being called into their presence and that little trembling. You know, maybe you have to go back to high school and there's the principal or the teacher and you get called out for that or, or something. Or maybe your boss at work or maybe a policeman pulling you over. If you had to stand before a judge, you know, think of that. Man, I hope they have this power and authority over me. They can make my life miserable. They could put judgment upon me. They could take away money. They could take away my freedom. They could do these things. And that respect and that fear and that kind of trembling that comes on you. Oh, I got to go do this. You know, man, imagine all that. It's the God of the universe who sees all, knows all. You understand this kind of fear and trembling that he has. And Jesus tells him to fear not. I am the first and the last. He's reminding John, I know you. You know me. And I'm in charge of it all from beginning to end. I'm the one in charge. Uh, This is not uh, random chaos. I really am in charge. I know what's going on. I have a plan. I have a purpose. Trust me. And I think that's some foreshadowing for us. Because we're going to read a book 
where it seems like evil's winning, and evil's winning, and then evil wins some more. And we're not used to that. We're used to victory in Jesus. We sing about that, but there's going to be time where it says he wears out the saints. And I'm sure this is a comfort to them to know that God's in charge, that God's in control. And that I'm sure the pastors during the tribulation are going to have to comfort their congregation when they hear of another one who's died and whatever the latest plague that's come upon the earth to say that he's the first and the last, that he's in charge. It's not what we would pick, but it's what he has in mind, you know, that he's using us to his glory. This is comfort. Fear not. I am the first and last. He's in charge from beginning to end. Verse 18, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Nothing can touch me. I think this is a specific one for not only us here now, but for the tribulation saints. Because we're going to have someone who not only rails against us and persecutes Christians, but also persecutes God and says blasphemous things about God. If you take the passages we read recently in Daniel on Wednesday nights, he has a mouth speaking big things about how he's going to do all these things to the Most High and on the Almighty. He's going to say, oh, I've... Look at my new weapons that I have. I'm going to kill him. I'm going to destroy him. I am all victorious. And it's going to seem like, wow, he's got some weird technology that we can God have. That? And he has warned us here in advance. They killed me the first time. And it was part of my plan. I'm alive forevermore. I, I can't be touched. Death has been defeated. You know, I am alive. And you, if you know me, you are alive. You will be alive forevermore. And so it goes for us, you know, that the enemy's been defeated. It's done. He can't be defeated again. I'm alive forevermore. He says, amen after that. That's true. Thou sayest, yes, this is right. I cannot be defeated no matter what they say, no matter what's being spoken, no matter what's being done. I am alive forever. You know, his death the first time only came for our benefit. You know, for him to restore us, restore creation, to reverse the curse and take all those things, be able to come down and defeat the enemy. And so it was for our benefit. If he wanted to, he wouldn't have been killed. But he did it for us because of his kindness and his graciousness and his love for us. Then he tells us about his power and authority at the end of verse 18. And I have the keys of hell and of death. If you have the keys, you're in charge. I spent a lot of time last year thinking about keys. And I still think about keys a lot because I built a green monstrosity that's in the parking lot. And you're like, yeah, we see it. (laughs) It's there, but part of it's an escape room. So it has keys. There's things that you unlock that get you to a different place. And here's Elaine and I at night... How can we protect that key better? You know, how can we, we want to delay when they open this so they get in there, you know, because we have an hour and we try to time it out and we try to make the, the process work in a certain way. And as the authors of it, you know, we spend a lot of time writing the story and investigating how it's going to go and, and hiding and making the keys secure. We had test groups come through and we we're like, oh, we didn't protect that key very good. They're able to bypass it. And mom says all this is going over her head. <laughs> but it's, a, it, it's keys that you're unlocking that get you to the next phase, to the next phase, the next phase. So we guarded them and we were in charge of the keys. We protected them until we wanted them to open them, you know, then we, you know, the clues would come, would come and do that. If you have the keys, you're in charge. Jesus says, I have the keys. I am in charge. The warden doesn't fear the jail. He's got the keys, right? You know, so it's only the prisoners, the ones who don't have the key, that they're trapped in there. And so Jesus says, I have the keys of death and hell. I'm the one who's in charge. I lock up and I decide who gets in and who gets out. And Jesus says, I'm in control. Cartoonists like to draw, draw the devil in charge, you know, of hell down there sitting at the table like, hey, no. Hell is made for him, not to be king over, to be punished in. It's made for the devil and his angels. It's not a kingdom for them to rule. It is a place for them to pay for the corruption and the suffering and the sin that they've put upon the earth. He's at the hottest part. He's not ruling and reigning. Jesus has the keys of death and of hell. 
So Christians need not fear what is coming in the rest of this book. That's what he's telling us. I hold the keys to death and to hell. I decide. I'm the one who's in charge. So yeah, there's comfort in that. The book of Revelation is a scary book if you're lost. It's a terrifying book. It should be if you're lost. It's kind of disturbing if you're saved. <laughs> you read through this, you're like, man, this is some horrible things that are coming. But boy, those things are for the lost. The terrible things that are coming are for the lost or for the undecided or for the rebels or for the enemies. It's not for us. They don't have anything to touch us. Those, those things aren't for us. We, he saved us. He's taken the wrath for us. The wrath that God pours on the earth isn't ought to be on us. It's not going to be something that we have to endure and go through you know, because we live here and now. See, we are pre-trib. At least that's how I read the Bible and interpret it. And I think us as a group together, we, we are this. And pre-trib is the short version of saying pre-tribulation. And so before the tribulation, the last seven years happens, we believe the church will be called out. You know, that will be taken out of that. And so those things in the tribulation don't happen to us. They aren't for the church. And so that's what the book of Revelation is. It's really a detailed look at the last seven years of the Daniel 9 prophecy. That's why Daniel 9 is a vital prophecy that we read and we study and we go back to often. And every time I say Daniel 9, you roll your eyes at me. It's like, no, but here's why. This is, this is valuable. This is what we're understanding. This is what this is. This is a, a zoom-in view. You know, you've clicked on it with your mouse and you're scrolled in and you're looking and it's getting more and more detail, kind of like Google Maps. So you're getting in and now you're seeing that in the book of Revelation is being displayed for you in finer detail. That's what this is. That's why Daniel 9 is important. That's why the book of Revelation is going to drive you to Daniel 9. That's why Jesus in Matthew 24 says, go read Daniel 9 where he said about the abomination of desolation and told you about these things. He is driving us through the rest of his word where he's given us these details. And so he is giving us a key here to understand the book of Revelation. He wants to unlock it for us. It's going to be the legend for the map that he has. And this key here unlocks how we're going to interpret it how we're going to read this book. He's basically going to give us an outline for how the book is laid out in advance. So we know what is happening in advance. And that key is in verse 19. Verse 19 says, Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. Sounds a little cryptic. You know, I kind of like the way he says it, though. It sounds like it has the power and authority that it does, and it does. In this verse, he commands John to write these things down, to record this. Put this down. And he tells him to write what he has seen in chapter 1. It's important for us to understand the setting. That's why we don't blow past chapter 1. This is important. He tells us where I was. He says that this is a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's going to tell us about Jesus Christ. He's being revealed to us. It was given to him to give to us. So he's given it to us. He says, I was on the Isle of Patmos because of my testimony. I was there. I was separated. I have time. And then he's in the Lord's Day. He's in the Spirit's on the Lord's Day. He hears this trumpet. He turns around. He sees Jesus. And we have this encounter that we've just gone through, the only physical description of Jesus Christ given to us in the Bible here in Revelation 1. He writes it down. He says, you tell them all that, the setting of what is going on, the special encounter where you see me. You know, because Jesus Christ has already ascended. He's already gone to heaven. And so now here he is talking to John, giving him this revelation. So he gives it to him. He says, you write that down, the things that you have seen. That's chapter 1. And then he says, you're going to write down the things that are, the things which are. And that's the things that are, were going on right then and there, the things that were happening in the world during John's day and are happening to us here and now. So that's chapter 2 and 3, the things which are. The things we'll see and we'll look in detail as the church. And we'll get into that a little bit more a little bit later. So that's the things which are. And then he says the things which will be hereafter. 
So after the church, what happens after the church? That's verses, or that's chapter four through verse chapter verses. Chapter four through chapter twenty-two. The rest of the book of Revelation are the things that happen after that. And so he divides it into three timelines. He gives it into three portions: the things that you've seen, that's chapter one; the things which are the church, and the things that are after that. That's everything future. So he tells us part of the book is history. That's chapter one. Uh, and parts of chapter 2 and 3 for you and me, where we are in 2019, parts of it are history. And parts of it are as relevant as today. And we're going to look at that in detail. So we get a little bit of mixing in chapter 2 and 3 for you and I. It's a little bit different than it is for John. Because 2019 years or however long has been passed. And, so, and then parts of the book are exactly for today. The things that are are for you and me, which are chapters 2 and 3 as well. And then most of the book is future. After a monumentous event happens, the events will be written down, the things that are written down will begin to unfold. And I believe the monumentous, fantastic <laughs> event that happens, you know the word I'm trying to say, insert word there. Um, yeah, I'm not going to try again. <laughs> After that event's happened, uh, that's what the rest of the book is about. And I think that big event, that fantastic event that happens, is the rapture. It is something that marks the world, that changes the world. God has worked that way before. The church age began in a fantastic way. Fire comes down. You know, a bunch of people get saved all at once. You know, it has a birth all at once. I think we're taken out the same way. All at once, we're taking out. And then uh, the clock goes on and moves differently. So, yeah, the book is divided by this event. You, know, you figure he's already done that in the past. You know, Remember how I took you out of Egypt and you went through the water and we did those miracles. He marks it by these fantastic events. We're going to be a part of a fantastic event that divides this book. as a dividing point in this book. The future things that are coming in chapter 4 through 22, we've already seen be put into place. I was thinking uh, of a stage performance. You haven't been to a stage performance lately or like if you go see Lily perform at where are you going to be next week? North Central. If you go to North Central watch her, if you haven't been to see one of their shows, it's like a school goes, they perform, and then they march off, and they take all their stuff, and then the old Franklin's going to get on, and they got all these people pulling out all their gear, and they're putting out, you see people in sparkly costumes walking by, and they're all going by, they're getting their stage all ready for them, and they all get their pose, and they're ready. We're seeing the, the stage stuff happening now. Things are being moved into place where this stuff is about to happen. That's what we see the shadow being cast forward to us, and that's when we were talking about watching about a one-world government or watching about a one-world currency or a one-world leader. or We start thinking uh, all those things. We're seeing those shadows cast because the stage is being set for these events to happen. And so, yeah, that's things that are going to happen in the future. We're not going to be here for those things, but we can see those things begin to come into place. Chapter 1, verse 19 is what organizes the book. Write the things which thou hast seen and the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter. This book could be a really confusing book if you didn't have verse 19. Are we in the middle of it now? I don't know. There's believers out there now that think we're in the seventh trumpet and uh, we have this going on. I'm like, I think, you know, by reading this book, you're going to know. <laughs> if you're in the middle of these things, you're going to know what it is. We have all these weird ways of interpreting it. But I think if you use this verse as your outline, we know that some's history, some's for now, some's in the future. So there's a lot of this book that hasn't happened yet and won't happen, you know, until we're gone. And so this is just giving us an outline for how this book is laid out. So you might label off to the side of verse 19 if you write in your margins. This is the timeline of the book of Revelation. This is the outline of the book of Revelation. There's something there that you kind of circle. This is a key verse on how we're going to read the rest of this. Is it the thing that he has seen? No, that was chapter 1. Is it part of the things which are? That's chapters 2 and 3. Is it the part of the things that are future, the things hereafter? That's going to be chapter 4 through chapter 22. 
And so he is giving us an outline of what he's about to tell him you know, in this revelation. And so, chapter 1 is John on the Isle of Patmos speaking with Jesus. Chapters 2 and 3 is him writing down what Jesus tells him. And chapter 4 is the future. So, you and I live in chapters 2 and 3. It's the church age. Where God deals with the world through the church. We are the mouthpiece. We are his hands and feet. We are the ones that he is moving and working through. We're the ones who send out missionaries. We're the ones that are to be the lighthouse, that, that witness to the lost, that are preaching, that give the gospel tracts, that pray for one another, that do all these things, make Bibles, print Bibles, deliver Bibles. Like I said, we do all the stuff the church does because he works through us. The Gentiles, Jews alike, you know, we're all combined together here in the church age doing this work for him. But one day the church will be taken out. And not taken out as in someone shoots us, taken out in that way. No, taken out as that we are physically removed. That's what the harpazo, the word rapture, actually means the snatching away. It's like, think of little Raylan, you know, and he's running along and you're going to help him jump a puddle. You grab him by the hand and you pull him up. You know, when you have a little kid, you can do that. You can just pull him up by one hand. That's what this is like. It's like Jesus kind of takes us and pulls us up and we avoid the puddle that's ahead. We avoid the trouble that's coming. He takes us out of this harpazo to snatch away, to take away uh, by force. So one day we'll be taken out. And then God focuses on Israel again. He's no longer dealing with us in the church age. He goes back to a lot like it was in the Old Testament. That makes it make sense when you're in chapter 4 through chapter 22, why things are behaving the way they are. It's different than it does now. We don't see an angel fly through heaven and proclaim something. But in the Old Testament, you might. You know, they would see angels and they would have things opened up and there would be things that would happen, you know, big Big judgments would come down. Think of when they were in Egypt. You know, there's hail with fire that comes down. You know, there's water turning to blood. Those things return in the book of Revelation because God is back in that economy. I am speaking to Israel. I'm teaching to Israel. And I'm wanting them to warn the world. And I am warning the world. I am in charge. And I am bigger and better than anything on the earth. Repent or you're going to suffer the consequences of my wrath. He does it in a grand scale because he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So yes, I believe people will be saved during the tribulation. Why wait? <laughs> you can avoid the tribulation you know, now. Uh, the very first judgment that comes on the world, it kills one-fourth of the world's population. You're going to survive that or not? You know, and so you don't know. So today is the day for salvation. Now is the time. And the day of grace is so much better than the day of wrath. You don't want to be a reprobate. What if it's one of them? Well, I need to see one more thing. You can one more thing yourself to death. Well, let's take what you know and understand and repent and trust him now. So the one day the church will be taken out and God focuses back on Israel. Again, think it's more like the Old Testament. That's going to make the things in chapters 4 through 22 make more sense because he's dealing in this way. He's dealing with the world in way he, which he did. Uh, we've said this on Wednesday and we say it often. It's things being played in reverse. After the church age, it goes back to him speaking to Israel in this fantastic way. It's condensed time, seven years. You know, but he's bringing them back and he's showing them all this and then it comes back to like the Tower of Babel where there's this one world government and one world leader trying to oppose God, but he's pulling it back and he's going to eventually take us back to an Eden-like state. And so we're kind of seeing that played out. And so yes, it is fantastic, but is God dealing with them differently than he deals with us? So I said some of chapter 2 and 3 is history and some of it is now because it is. And it kind of gives me pause on how to present it on a Sunday morning. Sunday morning is different preaching it than it is like on Wednesday night or Sunday night teaching it. Verse 20 of chapter 1 says, The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. 
Now, we had the advantage of the, this book was written down. <laughs> and so when John turns around, he sees Jesus, and we're like, hey, what are those seven candlesticks, and what are those seven stars? We could jump ahead to verse 20, and we have it interpreted for us. And so we've kind of already cheated and done that. But Jesus is here telling them to say, here's what you're seeing. You're seeing the candlesticks, that's the church. The seven stars, that's the angels, or that's the, maybe an angel, or maybe the preachers. I still think it's both, and even more so as I've read this. Again, uh, he's given us the outline. Uh, from chapter, or verse 19. And now he's told us those things that he saw in chapter 1. He's told us about the candlestick, and he's now just, you know, interpreted that for us here in verse 20. He's told us about the seven stars, and again, I think that advantage that we have because it was written, we could see it. We know the seven churches. Verse 11 tells us the seven churches' names. We get them again, so it's not a surprise when we get to chapters 2 and 3 that he's listing those churches and going through in detail. We know it. He's already told us. And again, I think the, the preachers are... Or the, or the angels, or either angels and preachers, I think both. Uh, because reading this as a preacher, these seven letters are to me. And I feel the weight of that as I was even going through it again this morning. And that brings us to be some pretty serious sermons that are coming. I'm accountable if these letters are to me, to deliver them to you. And remember, this book comes with a blessing. I am to read them out loud in public to you. It's a decree in that way. We have the advantage of being literate and having copies of Scripture in our hand projected on walls that are around us. We can read them together. You know, that's an advantage for us that we'll see that you know, some of these churches don't have. This is a serious thing. This is a letter from Jesus Christ. Do you have a red-letter version? I think most of us have red-letter versions of the Bible, right? In my Bible, uh, chapter 1 is all on one page. It's on the right-hand side. So when I turn it to the left, I open up to chapters 2 and 3. That's all red. Here's that way, next couple of chapters, all red. This is Jesus speaking directly. It's all his word. It's all about him. It's, the red letters are for us to kind of help us understand context and who's talking. There is a group out there called Red Letter Christians that only really study the red letters. This is all about him. I, don't, I think if Satan can't get you to quit reading it, he'll get you to read it wrong. This is all him. It's all his word. This is a help for us. But we can look and see that it's him speaking directly to us. It's not John adding any interpretation. There's no... You know, there's no narrator here. It's Jesus just saying, here, write this letter, take dictation. Uh, to the church to Ephesus, write this. And then he gives the letter, and John is a man secretary, and he writes it down. And so uh, he writes them to these churches. And these are the churches in Asia, modern-day Turkey. So he writes his letters to them. He starts at Ephesus. And then he goes clockwise. And so if you were mad, please, on a map, uh, they are there, and they're in a circle, some, you know, pretty much a, a circle, and he delivers them this way. And I think it's orderly. God does things decently and in order. And so as he writes them down, you know, that uh, he goes to Ephesus first, he drops off that letter, then he's able to move on to Smyrna, and he's able to move on as he drops off those letters as he goes around. A phrase that we say around here often, we see it applied with this, God's order is never out of order. And so he's written these down for a reason in the order in which they are. I think John is a good secretary as he writes this down. And so he's put it in the way that he told him to. It wasn't like, oh, what was the order of those letters? It doesn't really matter. No, it does matter. We're going to see it's vital. If they're written in any other order, it doesn't make sense. And so he's written it in a specific order for us uh, so that we can see things on multiple levels. And so, again, like I said, if it's on a physical map, it's in the right order. It's chronological as they would come around. It's also in time that these are churches that start at the early church and it comes to the last church 
and they're chronological that way. They're in the right order as the church progressed and as the church did things and characteristics about those timelines are applied and spoken about in these. That's why he's chosen these specific churches and not all the churches. He's chosen out seven to represent the complete church to tell us about who that is. Ephesus, chapter 2, verse 1 is the first letter to them, is the church of Acts. Verse 1 says, Unto the angel of the churches Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Uh, we'll see that that's something that comes in each of these letters. He'll use something that was described in chapter 1 about himself to describe himself to these churches. We'll look at that and see how that's applicable to each one. And that's why we took some time to go through them in chapter 1, because he's going to refer back to these. Because he's already given us the keys, right? We talked about chapter 1 kind of being the legend, you know, helping us to interpret this book. And so you can't blow through chapter 1 and then sit here and be like, oh, what's he talking about? You know, we already know. <laughs> We've looked at these things. Look at this in verse 2. We're not really looking at Ephesus. We're just kind of using this as an outline. So verse 2, Revelation 2 says, I know the works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and has found them liars. He talks about apostles. Apostles are a part of the early church, the apostolic church. You know, the apostles were the disciples, but um, special 12 uh, that were pulled out and given this title. To be an apostle, you had to have seen the resurrected Christ. You had to have been in one of those meetings. You had to have a, be an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ heard his teachings, heard what he was saying, given the, the, the directions that were given to the early church. And this was crucial. He is starting a church that was going to last until he comes back. It's been some 2,000 years. You have to lay a good foundation. You know, if you're building something, you have to get the foundation square, you have to get the foundation right, because if not, it's gonna, as it goes up, it's going to get more wonky as it goes. And so you want to make sure you're crucial at the beginning to make sure those corner posts are there, that make sure that foundation is level, that is something that's solid, that is going to stand and be able to stand and withhold throughout the rest of the building that is upon that. So he guards and protects this. So he has these certain ones, and he's praising them, as we'll see next week, about making sure that someone is an apostle who says they are an apostle. We don't see an apostle mentioned again in this book until the end. When you get to chapter 18, God is judging the false church. and He's judging the false religion. He calls them you know, Babylon. We'll look all about that when we get there. And as he judges them, I'm going to look at it real quick. So Revelation 18, I think it's verse 14. I didn't have my notes to read, but I thought I would. Revelation 18, verse 20 says, Rejoice over her, thou heaven, and ye holy apostles and prophets, for God hath avenged you on her. He's like, I told you I would, and now I have. And so the apostles are on the earth. The apostles are in heaven. He's now judging the world in this Old Testament style. When we get to here towards the end, and now he's putting this judgment on the false church and the lies and the deception that's come through false religion and cults and all these different things. He goes, I judged them and the holy apostles that started out the foundation and true and sure and the prophets who spoke these things and written that you and I study and the ones who tell and, and go back and preach the gospel this way. He says, I told you I would and I did. You did the good work and he rewards them and he applauds them and he says, I've done it. I judged them for it. Thank you for holding force to what is true and what is good and what is right and not being swayed by these things. And so he mentions them here at the end where we'd expect to see them because they're not on the earth during this. And then he mentions them one other time in verse, uh, chapter 21. Not the last chapter, but the next to last chapter. In verse 14, 
And it says, in the wall of the city, Revelation 21, 14, in the wall of the city had 12 foundations, talking about the new Jerusalem. And in them, the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. He's talking about the 12 foundations. That's what the early church did. They laid the foundation. The apostles laid the foundations. And he says, I'm going to honor you. And throughout all eternity, the foundations of the new Jerusalem, because you and I are only citizens of the new Jerusalem because of what the apostles had laid down, you know, because they taught us the truth. They taught us about Jesus Christ. They taught us the sound doctrine. They'd instructed it. They'd put it down in letters and they'd written it and it's been preserved for us to read and to study. And so, yes, the heaven had grown, you know, because of them and what they've done. And God says, and I will honor them for their faithfulness, for their diligence, for laying that firm foundation. They will be honored in the foundation of the new Jerusalem. We'll look at those and somehow we'll see their names written in there. Is it just written in there? Is there something about them in each one? I don't know. I can dream of all kinds of things. You know, but, but it's there. Maybe it is just their name. But we'll see it and we'll know it and we'll be thankful for who they are and what they did. He's back to the foundation again. He's back to honoring them for the first work that they did. So yeah, this is what, the, what it's built on. Because that first church and these who saw, these 11, and we always think, oh, who's the 12th one? The Bible goes into great detail. It tells about the 12th one. It's Matthias. You know, that they, they had a whole system for picking who was next after Judas was found to be the traitor. And they had seen the risen Christ, and they preached the message, and they guarded against heresies. Every heresy that tries to creep in the church today was faced in the first century church. It's already been dealt with. It's already been done away with. So when Dan Brown writes a book about some fantastic things about uh, the Da Vinci Code or something as the hidden and the lost apostle, the letters and all these different things, they faced all that early on. We've already put a nail in it and said it was dead. They've already weeded out and said those are heresy. You know, because we had apostles to say, no, I'd seen the risen Christ. I know what was right and wrong. Those are wrong. That's a false. They called them pseudepigraphas. They wrote them under false names. You know, the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Mary and the Gospel of... We know who they are. We know where they are. They, they resurface now and again. They put them back out there because there's young, innocent people that read it and we're like, well, they've been holding this truth from us. You know, there's something going on. No, we knew, we understood, and they really fought for that to make sure they were on a good foundation. They fought for what was good and what was right and what was the truth so that we wouldn't end up in 2019 with all kinds of stuff in here. We can go back to what did they do in the early church, and it's a great help for us as pastors as we go back and study it. So they'd seen the risen Christ. They spread the gospel. They didn't let them add to it. They didn't let them take away. They built the churches, and they taught and they instructed them on how to have a church, how to do a church, how to be a church. And so that we can stand, and we'll talk about some of that tonight, some of those distinctives that make us who we are uh, as a church. And so the foundation was laid once, and that office is gone now. You don't go back to the foundation later. I need a new foundation. Uh, you get cults when you do that. Mormon. The church has gotten all wrong. We need to start all over. I got a message from God. I am now Joseph Smith. I am starting and laying a new foundation on a new church. No. <laughs> we didn't lose it. We're not wrong. You know, God is in charge. God is in control. We have the foundation. It is in the Gospels. We don't need anything new. We don't need a new revelation. We don't need all that. It's complete and it is done. And so he's told us that in advance to counteract any heresy that would come up later. And so we have a lot of other people. There's a lot of apostolic churches that say, well, I'm an apostle. and I've seen. No. <laughs> we, we can measure that against the book of Revelation here and see that that's, that's not right. You know, he's given us tools here. So the foundation was laid once and that office is now gone. They kept it so that they can be built right. And now, because they did, they're rewarded here in chapter 21. The last church in the letter of the churches is in chapter 3. It's verse 14, where he writes to Laodicea. That's the church of the last days. And so the other churches that are in between are from that first church, the church of Acts, you know, that we see in the book of Acts, up until modern day. 
up until us, the Laodiceans. So there's other churches we'll look at that are the Dark Ages and the Middle Ages and, and all those things. And, and we'll point those out. But the last church is us. The lukewarm church. Neither hot nor cold. So there's all times in between in here. And so some of these are history from our perspective. And some of these are current. As in Laodicea is us. Next week, we'll start reading these letters. I have some homework for you. One of these is probably written to you specifically, personally. Jesus Christ writing it to you. That's why he's asked the angels of the churches to read these out loud, you know, so that we could hear them and meditate on them. One of these letters describes Cornerstone as a whole body, who we are. I personally root for Philadelphia, but I'm not foolish enough to think that that's probably so... That's the one church that doesn't have a rebuke. So which one's us? So here's our assignment for next week. Prepare yourself for the reading of these letters. Imagine being the church of Ephesus. And word has gotten out that John had seen the risen Christ. And he wrote a letter to us. And that the courier was coming. He was going to drop a letter off from Jesus Christ, written to us specifically about our church. And he was going to deliver it. I don't know which one's us specifically. I might have some hints, but uh, wouldn't you be there if Jesus had wrote a letter to us, to you, to our church? I think the church would probably be full, you know, that week. Like, hey, a letter from Jesus, you know, has come and written to us to either encourage us or rebuke us or how this is going to be, you know, to tell us who we are, what we're doing. What an encouraging thing. So I encourage you to commit to come for these seven letters and not miss and ask yourself, is this letter to me? Because this letter does not only apply to us as a church in the age. We've seen that through time. I've, I've given you a little from the apostolic church to the last days church. It represents those ages. It also represented a physical church. There is a church of Ephesus that got this letter and it was talking about them. But that letter then applied to an age. And it also applies to people, individuals within the church. And local churches that are on the earth today. There's Ephesus churches. There's Smyrna churches. There's Philadelphia churches. There's Thyatira churches. You know, it applies to different ones. And, and he's written a letter to all of them. Which one's to you? Which one's to us as a whole? You know, you might be a Philadelphia church stuck in a lay to see a body, you know. And so we might, we might have two that apply to us. We might have aspects of all these that represent us because our God is all-inclusive and he's written everything. You might have been a Philadelphia church at one time and maybe you're an Ephesus church now who's lost its first love. You know, where are we in this? You know, it's not like we got saved and went home. You know, we're here and we're living. So ask yourself this. Are these letters speaking to me? And do I want to hear it? Do I want to hear what it has to say? I'll give you a cheat. The answer is yes. <laughs> yes, I, I want to hear. I want to see. Uh, last week we were talking about how to share Jesus without fear and angels remind us of the last thing in that process of it's a witnessing uh, class that you go through is like, if, if what you believe weren't true, would you want to know it? Same thing. You know, if, am I doing what is right? Do I want to know where I am? Where am I in my Christianity? Do I want to know if I'm, if I'm doing right or wrong? Jesus puts it this way, if you look at verse 7, very first part, he says, He that hath an ear, let him hear. Do you have ears to hear? He's not talking about physical ears. Are you willing to listen? Are you willing to examine yourself and say, Is that me? Is that us? We have, we have twofold. We have to look at ourselves individually. Is this me? Am I this church? Does this represent me and my Christianity, my walk, where I am right now? Does this represent my church? How do I see our church in this? You know, and we need to listen because he gives an opportunity. He says, repent. Listen to what this is. You know, and take my instruction because these are love letters. 
It's not like Jesus is like, oh, I've got this against you. He might say those words, but he's saying it for our benefit. He wants us to change. He wants us to adjust. He wants us to adapt, to be like him, to, to be the church that has nothing said against it, you know, to take the good things from these churches and apply them to ourselves and to be, well, I need to strive to do that. I, I need to watch. I need to be on guard in case I'm becoming cold and indifferent. And I want to make sure I'm not you know, lukewarm and nothing really riles me up anymore. You know, we want to look at those things. And so, yes, we need to know and we need to insert ourselves. And so, do you have ears to hear? Will you have ears to hear as we come? So like I said, be honest. Be honest with yourself because these are love letters written from Jesus Christ to us. And they've traveled through time to 2019 and they've fallen in our laps. And he asks us to judge ourselves through these things. And if you're saved, these are letters to you. And if you're not saved, you need to get saved. I appreciate the congregation we have here this morning. And so we need to be honest, we need to be open, and we'll start digging into these letters next week. And uh, I'll just tell you, wear your asbestos underwear, because that's going to be some hot fire coming down. So <laughs> no, you want to be prepared for that. And so uh, let's be honest, let's be open, because this is for our benefit. This is for our good. He wants us to be prepared for the day. Uh, we started off with singing, Are You Washed in the Blood? We were given that white robe when we started with. Robes were white. And then we said, do I have any spots? Are there any blemishes that got on there? Maybe we need to do some cleaning. I ruined a, a shirt two weeks ago. I got saws all over my sleeve. <laughs> my wife couldn't get it all. You need to know. It's like, oh, there's a spot. I can't get it out. I need to work on that or get a new shirt. You know, so we need to look and see, are there spots on our garments where we need to clean and get it right? And so we need to take inventory and look. That's what these letters are. Letters to us as the church, as church individuals and as the church as a whole. Help me look for us. Let's be honest at who we are.